Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. I'll be the first to admit that growing a newsletter is hard. Podcasts and newsletters are up there as one of the hardest types of content to build an audience for. And that's why I want to tell you about a tool that's been a game changer for me. It's called Sparkloop. Sparkloop is the referral tool for newsletters. Basically, you can create a referral program that allows you to get more subscribers on autopilot. It connects with your email marketing tool of choice. It's got a generous 30-day free trial, and it works wonders. It's allowed me to grow my own newsletter much quicker than I could by myself, and I'm never going back to not having it. Check them out at sparkloop.app slash EIM. You can find the link in the show notes. On the show today is Rand Fishkin. Rand is the founder and CEO of SparkToro, an audience intelligence and market research tool to discover what your audience reads, watches, listens to, and follows. He previously founded Moz, one of the market-leading SEO tools, and also authored a fantastic book about his journey through the startup world called Lost and Founder. I wanted to bring him on because he's truly an original thinker. Rand really gets to the core of an issue and uses first principles thinking to understand the dynamics and incentives and ingredients of a certain situation, which has allowed him to produce some really outstanding work. So you'll hear about how you can leverage niche channels to diversify away from the traditional platforms like Facebook and Google, and also hear about the future of content and SEO. You'll get an inside look into his own marketing and growth strategy for SparkToro and lots more. All right, Rand, to start out, did you ever think that you would be teaching audience intelligence and SEO for a living? <laughs> I mean, gosh, when I thought about uh, making a living, you know, after I dropped out of college, web design was the first thing I did. So, and that, that quickly turned into SEO. Um, I, I'm not sure about audience intelligence. That's obviously something... That was a, it was pretty early in my career. So I don't know that I had a whole lot of time in childhood to uh, consider other options. Did you ever think, do you ever think back now and think like, what am I doing in this whole world of marketing and tech and, and, and software? Or did you sort of expect like, uh, I could end up, I could see myself ending up in something like this uh, or being in this world? Um, I mean, I like, I like a lot of the things about uh, software and tech and, and marketing. I like a lot of the people. Um, I, I love the relationships that I get to build. I like the, um, instantaneousness of sort of seeing how my work lands. You know, you produce something in a lot of fields, you know, I have friends who are academics, for example, right. And they make something, they do some research and it'll be five years. 12 years, right, before they see if it does well. Um, you know, I think uh, venture capital is another field like that, right? You become an investor, you're like, well, I guess in 20 years, we'll see if I was a good investor. That's 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 pretty frustrating. Um, I, I love the instantaneous nature of marketing. I think that's how I like cooking, too. You know, you make something and you find out if it's good right after you make it. That's, that's kind of awesome. Um, I will say I do sometimes, I do sometimes feel that I have um, an obligation to do more than just this, right? That, I don't know, you know, hopefully I'm making a difference in my own little way and 
you know, helping some people, improving some people's lives. I don't know, being the first podcast guest on an emerging podcast, right? Like that, that's a nice thing to feel like you can contribute to, but, um, I don't know, with so many just overwhelming and horrific problems in the world, it, it sometimes feels like a drop in the bucket. You know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. Well, one of those drops in the bucket that you are not shy about is your distaste for the sort of advertising duopoly and big companies that are Facebook and Google, um, and, uh, the marketers sort of first choice. Um, and you've encouraged people to look outside of that realm, even to consider, you know, the ethics of these types of companies and advertising on those platforms. But why should marketers look elsewhere? Um, and what other, what other opportunities are out there if they're not leveraging two of the largest and well-known channels, uh, that marketers use today? Yeah, let's see. So, okay. So kind of three questions in there, I would say in terms of the, um, why do I, why do I think it's problematic to have Facebook and Google controlling so much of online marketing and advertising? Um, the answer is like, I think we are all very familiar with, uh, the negative externalities of Facebook and Google's impact on, you know, society and politics and social issues and convincing people that whatever Tom Hanks and Hillary Clinton and a bunch of Jews like run a pizza dungeon with lizard people and baby eating. And, and, you know, that type of stuff is, is obviously bad as, as marketers more directly. Well, maybe that's impacting you directly. I know a lot of people who've lost family to that crazy crap, but, um, impacting your business, uh, bottom line, right? I think one of the big challenges that you've seen is that Facebook and Google both like Corey, when did you get into search and social marketing? About four or five years ago. Yeah. Okay. So, so like five years ago, right. Um, Facebook's ad platform and, uh, some of Google SEO, right. Was still relatively easy to enter. You know, you, you, you join that field and like, you can make relatively quick progress as, as soon as it becomes saturated. And as soon as those platforms become market dominant, then they control you know, essentially the margins that you can get from them, right? So Google can uh, decrease the amount of data it gives you and increase the ad dollars that you're spending with them. Oh, these things that you, you know, you were getting all this nice traffic from us. Well, now we're going to play prisoner's dilemma and either you let us crawl and index your website or we're going to take away all your traffic. But if you do let us crawl and index your website, we're going to show a lot of those snippets. We're going to take a lot of your data and put it into our own products and steal a bunch of your clicks. And what are you going to do about it? We, we pay hundreds of millions of dollars a year to lobby the government. They're, they're never going to pass any antitrust against us. Like you just, you go back to your little hidey hole and be grateful for the traffic we give you. Um, you know, Facebook, same story, right? Five years ago, maybe, maybe seven years ago, you know, Facebook's average page engagement rate was, dropping from 10% to like 5%, 2%. People were complaining. It was really frustrating <laughs> today, today. Average page engagement rate, 0.09%. Why did we all work so hard to build up, build up our platforms on Facebook? Hmm. You know, it was, it was to benefit Facebook. It was never about us. Like we we're, we're just the suckers. Um, so the, these are sort of the negative impacts. I think the benefits of looking beyond them, your, your second question in there was, you know, it's really, it's really three things. One is, uh, it's so that you don't have to contribute exclusively to 
this duopoly and their power and their revenue, which is generally being spent to harm people like us, um, you know, personally and professionally. Second is if you invest in those channels, you generally can't build a competitive advantage, right? Everybody participates in those platforms. They're open to everyone. They're sort of the first place everyone goes. And so it's very, very difficult to um, stand, build a competitive, a competitive advantage in marketing if those are your exclusive choices. Whereas if you venture outside of those two, you often get far more opportunity to get you know, a, a higher ROI and lower competition and more interesting opportunities and uh, more creative things, ways you can leverage your, your brand, your platform and other people's um, you know, just to improve your marketing. And then the third one is if you are, if you build a brand that is known, liked, and trusted by an audience of people who've already visited your website, uh, in the space already, right? If, if lots of people know who you are and are sort of like, oh yeah, I really like that company, your Facebook and Google ads are going to work really well. But if the only place they ever see you and the first time they see you is an Instagram ad, a Facebook ad, a Google search ad, your click-through rate is probably not going to be great. Your, your conversion rate's not going to be great. You're going to pay the most and be seen the least. Like that, the ad platforms don't work as well for you unless you have already built up your audience in other ways. So the, the, for those three reasons, uh, it really pays to get outside of the platform. And then your last question, um, <laughs> where are places that, that people can go? Uh, my, so my advice would be, the, the answer is, there's a million opportunities, right? You could uh, be a guest on other people's podcasts. You could contribute to webinars and, and uh, in-person events whenever those return to the world. Uh, you could um, participate in YouTube channels, right? You could do sponsorships. You can do influencer marketing specifically with sort of social uh, folks. You could uh, email people with a powerful Twitter account or LinkedIn account and, and reach out to them, build a relationship and ask them to amplify your stuff. You could contribute uh, uh, guest pieces and, and op-eds. You could uh, sponsor someone's uh, you know, event or podcast or webinar or, or their website. Marketing is broad. There's a million things you can do. You can come up with a, a thousand creative things that I haven't mentioned here, right? But the, the idea at the core, I think, is to find places where your audience participates so you know you can reach them there and you have some unique value that you can provide through that space. Hmm. One, one of the things I think that a lot of people are wondering is if they are going to look outside of Facebook and Google, uh, and I'm sort of unintentionally teeing you up for this question, but how do they go and find uh, other places, maybe non-traditional places to market their products or services, make connections, build sort of partnerships, um, Obviously, SparkToro was built for this exact sort of reason and this exact use case. Yeah. Um, but what are the practical ways? Like if someone were today going to think, okay, tomorrow I'm going to go very, you know, on one side of the spectrum and I'm going to say, I am never advertising on Google or Facebook ever again. Um, what, what's, what's the first step for them? Where would they go? How would they go find these new platforms and audiences that they can plug into? Sure. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think there's, there's a whole bunch of options and ways to start, right? There's the, the simplest, cheapest, easiest way you can possibly start is, uh, you know, you go to Google search and you type in a bunch of words and phrases around your sector that people are likely searching for. And you see what kinds of websites come up. 
maybe you click over to the Google News tab and you see like what kinds of publications are writing about this stuff. Maybe you go to YouTube and see what channels are covering that kind of stuff. Granted, you're gonna get kind of biased by commercial stuff and by things that are good at ranking as opposed to things that are good at attracting the audience you wanna reach. So you could also go to the social networks, right? You could go to Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and Reddit and Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. And you can search for, you know, sort of hashtags or keywords and like find some people who've got some followings in those spaces. You can survey and interview your customers, right? Like, hey, how'd you hear about us? Hey, what, you know, what, 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 what sources of influence do you generally follow? Do you read this magazine? You check out this industry publication? Are you following this person? You can get some data that way. It's not, it's not fantastic. And then there's sort of audience intelligence platforms, um, uh, data platforms like SparkToro. Um, there are, there's another one called Audience, um, but it's spelled a little funny. It's like audience, but instead of a C, E at the end, I think it's S, E. Uh, you know, you could use a platform like that. You could, um, SparkToro itself, right, is basically, you can do this for free. You can go and search for, you know, my audience talks about whatever it is, gardening, or my audience uses these words in their profile, chemical engineer, or whatever it is. And then SparkToro will show you what that group of people follow and pay attention to in what proportion, right? So 16% of chemical engineers listen to this podcast, right? That kind of thing. Um, and another free tool you could use is similar web, right? So you go find a website, your own website or some popular website in your uh, sphere, type that into Spark uh, to similar web, scroll down to the bottom. They'll show you competitors and similar sites. You can see basic traffic data. So those are all like methodologies to sort of start getting at, okay, where could I go reach my audience that it's not just Facebook and Google. And the smart thing about that is, if you do that in conjunction with or first before you do your advertising, you, you'll get a much better results whenever you do decide to go do ads on Facebook and Google. Hmm. Yeah. I think one of the, the sort of trends and things people are um, are thinking about and it's top of mind today is there's this whole kind of bucket of maybe what you would someone would classify as influencer marketing, right? Or exactly what we're talking about of plugging into someone else's audience, seeing what they you know, what your customers or potential customers pay attention to, you know, who has the attention of who you want to get in front of. Um, yeah. but the, the lines like between, PR. Yeah. right. The lines between digital PR influencer marketing, quote unquote, partnerships, sponsorships, affiliates, they're all kind of, the lines are blurring there. Um, in your eyes, what are sort of the different schools of thought, uh, on influencer marketing sort of how that's cat categorized and maybe how is your take a little bit different than, how you nor see people normally talk about it. Well, so let's see what I, I think the good news is digital PR is becoming broad enough that it's sort of encompassing um, a lot of the things that influencer marketing used to mean, like, you know, influencer marketing, like seven years ago meant go find, you know, your customers sources of influence and do marketing in all those places. And now influencer marketing mostly means go find a half naked person on Instagram and pay them $500 to pose with your product. <laughs> and that, that form of influencer marketing, I'm not super excited about. I know it works for some brands. Like, look, if you're in whatever athletic wear or, or, you know, um, travel or certain kinds of like, 
I don't know, cooking uh, equipment or, you know, some stuff like that. That works okay, right? You find a human being who shows lots of skin on Instagram and like, ta-da, look at that. We got it. We reached, you know, half a million people with this sponsorship. Um, I, I don't think that's generally right for most businesses. Um, and I think it's far too narrow a definition. So I tend not to use the term influencer marketing and SparkToro. In fact, when we built and launched SparkToro, we had thought about including a lot more Instagram data. And then as we were kind of like growing it, we're like, oh man, the way people think about influencer marketing and Instagram in particular is kind of not what we want to do and not how we want to help people. So you know what, let's kind of leave out a lot of the Instagram and influencer marketing stuff. We'll focus on the audience research and market, market research and audience intelligence and like, you know, digital PR side of things much more heavily um, and, and leave that maybe for a later date um, so as not to position ourselves that way. So that, you know, that's kind of my frustration around that field. I don't know if you feel the same way, but. Oh, absolutely. Sure yeah. I mean, I would love to see a B2B SaaS company try to find an Instagram model and uh, make that work, right? But it's... Yeah, it's, like, it's a little know. bit. is it me? Maybe I need to start posing with my shirt off. You know, I reach a lot of B2B SaaS marketers. Uh, maybe I should just, you know, everyone will know I don't go to the gym, uh, which I guess nobody goes to the gym anymore. But, <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's not going to be a good scene. No, no. And, and I think that's what's top of mind for a lot of people is... Uh, and what's interesting to me about what you're doing and sort of how you think about it is that influencer marketing has sort of been um, hijacked or maybe popularized through one like specific use case, you know, usually for like yeah. an e-commerce brand, you know, working with an Instagram influencer or something like that. But there are far more implications that people usually, you know, realize that there's a lot of opportunity sort of a green field um, thing out there that isn't very popularized in a lot of other industries. So if someone were to sit down and figure out all the people who are influential to their audience, maybe publications, podcasts, events that they should sponsor or attend or places that they can get in front of. How would one then go about reaching out and partnering in a way that is, is successful? You know, because again, it is a very uh, sort of blue ocean, uh, unpopularized thing right now. So from yeah. what you've seen with your customers, what's the difference between what makes someone successful in doing an influencer partnership versus a, fa a failure yeah uh great great question I, how is no nobody's asked me that before that's what i, I want to hear you, you must yeah you must be good at this podcasting thing uh <laughs> so, so um this this is um something that we think about a ton right because i think people who have a lot of success using SparkToro or or just using the philosophy of digital pr in general um I think what separates the good from the great is when you find, when you get good data about the, the audience that you're targeting and the platform they pay attention to, right? So if I know that my audience is available through this website, through this public, through this blog, through this uh, quarterly journal that publishes, you know, a, whatever, um, a sponsored white paper, through uh, webinars that you know are marketed on LinkedIn, through, I don't know, they follow these 10 Twitter accounts, whatever it is. If you can really figure that out, that is one thing that can definitely separate you from the pack. I'm sure you've seen the tons and tons of folks who like, 
you know, just spam outreach you with like, hey, will you take a guest piece? Will you take our person? It's like that. There's no relevance. There's no audience overlap. It doesn't make sense. So audience data or, or, or insight or intuition, huge. Second piece is whenever you are creating something, whether that something is, you know, a person that you're pitching as a guest or an op-ed that you're pitching or a guest contribution or a, a, you know, a pitch to do a sponsorship or, or a co-marketing relationship. I think you have to ask the question, who will help amplify this and why? Like, why is it going to resonate with this audience in such a way that they feel incentivized to share it or that, that the audience I'm reaching feels incentivized to share it and to resonate with it? And if you don't have a great answer to that question, I think you got to go back to the drawing board, hmm. right? Like, don't go sponsor a webinar just because your audience is there. Go sponsor a, a webinar because your audience is there and because the webinar is about this topic that is really, really interesting and relevant to this positioning or this angle of what our product does or how it helps solve this problem. And so when people hear it, they're not only going to remember the brand and the product itself, they're also going to make the connection between the problem and your solution. That, that's what you're really looking for. And then the third thing is how you do that outreach, right? Mm. So like a cold email is the worst way to go. It is the absolute worst. The, the, the absolute best is getting a warm introduction, right? Like, uh, hey, Corey, it was great being on your podcast. Oh my gosh, you got to talk to my friend, Melanie Diesel. She wrote this content fuel framework book uh, based on the things that we talked about. Like, I think you're going to love having her on. Boom, right? Like, I don't know if it's 100%, but like high, high chance that you'll be like, yes, give me that introduction to Melanie. Like, I want to talk to her. Great. I make a connection over email. You guys take the conversation offline. Boom. Right now, now that that thing happens. The in the middle, in the middle of cold outreach and warm intro is what I call kind of the social first intro. So this works really well on me and it works really well for me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty sure it works, which is basically if you have a conversation, like an engagement with someone over Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, sometimes Facebook, um, in, in the comments of a blog post, whatever it is, if you, if that's your first touch, if you will, right. First interaction. And then you email them and you're like, Hey, Corey, it was great chatting with you on Twitter yesterday about blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to reach out because actually there's this other thing we're doing related to that, that, and maybe you'd be interested. I don't know if you'll respond. I don't know if you'll say yes, but you will read it. Cause you'd be like, oh yeah, I know that guy. I was chatting with him on Twitter, right? Sure. Yeah. That one works pretty darn well also. So if, if you can use that methodology for the, for your outreach, I think that can separate you from the pack as well. Yeah. You mentioned that that works really well on you. Um, what are some of the real life examples of someone who's done that with you and sort of the, the results of, uh, what you've done from a warm introduction like that, or a sort of a, a social introduction? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I have, I have done a lot of these types of events, right? Been on people's podcasts or, or, or done a presentation for a webinar or at a conference or event. Um, I have done a lot of social sharing. In fact, a ton of my social sharing, which works well, comes from people who 
sort of are cognizant of which audience I reach, know what I am interested in, right? And then like have some connection to me. They either get an introduction or they reach out on social first and then they follow up online. And what's great about that, like it's a win-win because if they share something good with me and I share it to my audience and it does well for me, that now I have more affinity for them and their brand. I'm going to be more likely to share their stuff in the future because mm. like, huh. I got a bunch of retweets. I got a bunch of engagement. I got a bunch of LinkedIn shares. I got a bunch of Facebook likes. I want to keep sharing stuff from you. Like, please produce more of that, you know, whatever it is, report, tool, data, graph, blog post, blah, 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 blah. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I got lucky then when I cold emailed you and asked you to be on the podcast without sort of a, a social introduction beforehand. But we have emailed previously. We have, you're right. Um, yeah. As a Sparktorial user, I think we have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think like, I was like, oh, I, I know your name, right? Like you're in my, whatever, go direct to my inbox, like primary inbox. So I, I think that helps too, right? If, if you've had some connection in the past, that is a, that is a big one. Th that's actually a great way. You bring up a great point, which is if you go try someone's new product and you're sort of like helping them get, you know, get their company, their business growing, like, of course, of course, they're going to feel indebted and they're, you know, yeah. they're going to have that relationship. So that's a, another really good one, right? Good reason to do your research when you're figuring out who you want to reach out to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the other things I was thinking about uh, in regards to finding these new and niche platforms or audiences to plug into people to partner with is that there could be a temptation to want to do all the things, reach out to everyone, work with as many people as you possibly can. And it sort of goes in line with one of the sort of mantras and cliches that kind of floats around in the marketing world of, you know, you want to be everywhere, right? And you want to um, appear all the places, you want to do all the things. Um, what do you think about that approach? The, the Gary V omni-channel. Yeah. You got to be hustling all the time. Uh... I, let's see, I don't want to dismiss it as complete baloney, but I don't, it does not work for me. I don't love it. I like to focus my attention and energy. I like to, um, I find that I do my best work when I sort of get good at a couple of channels and I focus heavily on them and I do them repeatedly and I don't worry about, honestly, TikTok, Snapchat, Really, I don't worry much about Instagram. I did some testing with it. I don't do Reddit, um, at least not not promotionally as a marketer. Um, I don't really use hashtags. I could, I could, and probably should do a little more hashtag marketing. But right, like I have my few things. I do them. I do them well. I do them over and over again. I get my, I get sort of the flywheel spinning, and that creates momentum and and builds experience. Right, I get better and better at doing these things. So, look, I think I think that that most people who don't invest in web marketing, digital marketing, um, don't invest because they, you know, and and maybe maybe the Gary Vee methodology is to blame for this. They feel overwhelmed, right? They feel like they they can't get their head around all of it, or there's so much to do that it feels overwhelming to even start, right? I, um, I know this is a dumb analogy, but like I felt this way about pickling. I, 
I have never even explored like how do I pickle things, right? I I enjoy pickles when I go out. I you know especially if I go like to a Korean restaurant, I'm like, oh, I love all the pickled stuff and the, <laughs> um, fermented stuff. But I was like, oh, uh, nine months in a jar underground. I don't that that's too much work for me. Like I can't I can't try that. I'm not gonna get into that. In my 20s, I never tried to braise anything. I was like, oh, braising. Whoa. No, no. That's Cereal, milk. Like, that's my jam, right? <laughs> that's where I can get to. But I think that if you can take early, a few early steps, that's a really powerful thing. And this, this is where I encourage people to, like, dip your toe in the water. Find one channel that you like personally. That you're like, oh, yeah, I have a lot of fun making videos for YouTube. I have a lot of fun tweeting. I have a lot of fun blogging. I have a lot of fun hosting a podcast. I think webinars are cool. Great. Wonderful. Pick that one thing, invest in it a little, find your audience there, find the, you know, find the, the, the people who are in that space, the publications that reach that, your audience in that space. Great. Do a little of that. Get good at it. Maybe add one more channel next year. Hmm. That is plenty good enough. And, and you can build up um, a very, very compelling flywheel from just one channel and tactic. Hmm. I want to get back to the flywheels and, uh, and the focus, sort of focused marketing here in a second. But I also wanted to, to ask you about sort of balancing the, uh, the platform that you use to reach your audience with the ethics and business practices of the platform itself, going back to, again, you know, something like a Facebook versus a Twitter versus a Google versus a TikTok, um, and where you draw the line. Is that a question that's top of mind for you and, and how you, you know, your job as a marketer and sort of your role as a founder also growing your company? Yeah, it's funny. So, you, uh, you bring this up. I had a little, I think I had a back and forth like once or twice with uh, Avinash Kaushik from uh, from Google, right? Who's also written literally the book on web analytics. Um, and Avinash is like a genius marketer. I love his ethics. I love his politics. I love his his, his social um, activism. Like wonderful guy in a million ways. He's wonderful, uh, sort of a hero. And um, he, you know, he was putting out there like, hey, Facebook has done so many terrible things. Like how how can you really participate ethically in furthering that platform as a marketer? And I I kind of agree. Like like Facebook's done so many repeatedly bad things to their employees, uh, uh, to you know around the world. I mean, you you can probably point to the um, Rohingya genocide as mostly Facebook's responsibility, right? Like that that is hundreds of thousands of people murdered by other people, mostly because Facebook didn't shut down an amplification algorithm around, you know, a uh, uh, misinformation and disinformation campaign. That's, that's hard to stomach. Like that, that hurts. Um, I, I don't know how Facebook sleeps with them, you know, sleeps at night, but, um, the way I think about it is this, I don't feel good giving money to Facebook. I don't feel good advertising with them or with Instagram, but I do feel okay, maybe even good about siphoning traffic away from them and participating in whatever it is, Facebook groups or on Instagram and basically uh, engaging in order to earn recognition in their algorithms 
and then take that traffic back to my website because that is essentially building resiliency uh, on the open web that Facebook does not own and control. So I think if, you part if you're participating in Facebook's ecosystems and send with the goal of driving that traffic off of Facebook back to your own site, capturing email addresses, building your audience for yourself, I think that's actually probably a win. I think that's an okay thing to do. I think you know, there's some ethical considerations there about, well, but you're still giving attention to the platform. And my argument would be the platform is so dominant. So many people are already there. Essentially, you, we need all of us to siphon the traffic back out of Facebook's ecosystem. Um, so that, that's where I am ethically. I, I think it's reasonable for folks to disagree, but. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking also on a more broad sort of definition of, of a platform, um, I think there are a lot of questions these days about the trade-offs between publishing on your own platform, which, you know, would be your email, um, your email list, newsletter, website and blog, uh, et cetera, right? Maybe your own sort of company accounts on social media platforms versus, uh, doing a guest post or, um, publishing to YouTube versus Wist versus Wistia, um, mm -hmm. What, what are those trade-offs and how do you think about measuring the trade-off and, and how to go about, do I post this on myself? Uh, do I post on another one? The give and take of it. Yeah, so the way I think about this generally is um, it's a balancing equation and generally speaking, when you're smaller. So for example, when I was at Moz, I did like 90% of my activity was all on Moz's website you know, the Wistia hosted the Whiteboard Fridays. I would blog on Moz's platform. You know, anything I was doing on social was sort of just like drag people back to, to Moz. With SparkToro, I do way more digital PR, right? I do way more stuff on other people's platforms all the time regularly, other people's webinars and conferences and, um, um, you know, podcasts and video interviews and streams and blah, 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 blah. And, and the reason I do that is because you know, whereas Moz's daily traffic was, I don't know, in the hundreds of thousands, right? If I hit publish on a Moz blog post, it was great. I, like I was almost guaranteed 10,000 visits to that post. With SparkToro, I can, I can usually get to one or 2,000. So like not terrible, you know, I'm starting from scratch again. So that's not bad, but it's nowhere near, you know, and, and Moz, it could go up, you know, 50 to 100,000 over time eventually, right, I hope SparkTor will be able to get back into those numbers, but it's it's tough, right? I'm a marketing team of one again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and so the way that I think about it is much more leverage other people's platforms because their distribution is going to be stronger than mine alone, right? So I put up a blog post on SparkToro. It goes to, you know, it probably, this is the other frustrating thing. I don't, I don't know why. As I get older, it takes me longer to blog. Very frustrating. <laughs> I guess I'm busy, but... You know, like I used to be able to blog uh, twice a week, no problem. Now, once every two weeks is a real challenge. Um, so yeah, maybe I just need to get back in the habit. But that has uh, that has been part of my thinking around like, hey, you know, if Corey and I do a 60 minute interview that took me one hour and that piece of content, I mean, you can tell me, dear listeners, like, hopefully it's good. Right. Hopefully it's worth listening to and engaging with and 
you know, somewhere between a few dozen to a few hundred, maybe even if this podcast does well, a few thousand people over time, right, will listen to it. And the other thing I've, I've found about podcasts that I love is it's sort of episodic. So if somebody listens to your 50th episode and then they're like, oh, man, this is a really good interview. Let me see what else is in the back library. You know, you can get you can get traffic and engagement and, and visits from that, too. So um I, I do a lot more of that now. That's how I kind of think about it. I, I I think that's the right way for other folks too as well. You should just, you should always be working, no matter where you're participating, right? Always be working to, to add memorable value so that people start to know you like you trust you. And you should be working to drive the traffic back to your own owned and controlled property, which is essentially just your website and your email list. Hmm. So you've you've segued seg, me perfectly into this idea of episodic content, um, and I'll quote you really quick that, that you said the episodic content world is where we're headed. If you want to build great, sustainable, long-term content marketing, it's not about getting one piece of content in front of the maximum number of people, but rather episodic content that you can repeat and grow with and keep producing that they will stick with and amplify and grow through word of mouth. So first I wanted to ask, it's going to be another two-part question here, but what makes content episodic rather than maybe other types of content? Uh, and also, why do you think that's the future of content marketing? Yeah. Um, so I, uh, let's see, I distinguish episodic from one-off content based on the through line of a series. So essentially you could think of, um, uh, Chris Savage from Wistia was the one who like turned me on to the, the phrasing episodic content. And I really like it. And his analogy is, oh, it's Netflix, right? Or, or whatever, HBO Max or, or Apple TV. Like you watch one episode of Ted Lasso and you're like, oh, that was, that was really funny and enjoyable. You know what? I'm going to keep my subscription going. I'm going to watch all 10 episodes, you know, right? You, you are back when you could do this over at a friend's house and you catch episode nine and you're like, oh, that was funny. All right, I'm going back and I'm watching the whole, let me see this whole series, right? You see one clip from it on YouTube or something. And you're like, it's oh, good. That's good. I want to know these characters more, right? Let me, let me go check it out. Same thing is true in the content marketing world. You know, you, there can be blog posts that are series, right? Uh, that are made episodic because they, they sort of tackle, you know, an issue at a time. Podcasts are almost always serialized in some way. Although some, some are more one-off, but some carry like a narrative through line, right? Everything is marketing, for example, is <laughs> a narrative through line that you could, you could very reasonably make. Uh, video series, my Whiteboard Friday video series, right? It was, it was episodic in its format and content. You knew what you were getting each week, right? And it, the topics were different, but the, the approach and the style and the filming and the length and all that stuff was, it was really similar. That's uh, the reason I think that episodic content is so powerful is because it builds up, um, it builds up that back catalog. It lets you exercise your creative, uh, storytelling, um, production muscles. You know, it's kind of like going to the gym, right? You're like, uh, I, I know I, I mentioned I've never been to the gym, but <laughs> regardless, right? Let imagine, you know, whatever day one, you can do like four pushups. And then, you know, day 100, you're like, huh, I can do 40 push-ups. This is pretty impressive. And day 400, you're like, I can finally do 100 push-ups in a row. Like, 
I, I kind of look good without a shirt on. Like, this is so nice. You know, it, uh, it's that, it's that kind of thing, right? So it's, it's a slow, slow slope, but it eventually gets you to a really exciting place. Content marketing muscles work the same way. You know, the first whiteboard Friday episode I did, <laughs> the camera was crap. The quality was crap. My disfluencies were terrible. It was like an um every other word. The content itself was not great. The presentation was poor. By episode 100, it was pretty decent. By episode 500, it was the best performing content we had on the site every week consistently. And people went back and watched backed episodes. And people who were introduced to the new episodes would go back and watch the, a ton of the back catalog. And, right? You, you, you get that boulder rolling down a hill, gravity is going to pick it up pretty quick. Hmm. And one of the, the struggles I think that can come with sort of the episodic content strategy is that in the beginning, like you mentioned, it can be sort of, uh, you know, pushing a boulder uphill and it can feel like, wow, is this really going to work? And um, you have to have a lot of vision. Um, how do you balance that with, you know, taking a very measured experimental approach to marketing and wanting to see, you know, early promising signs versus sticking something out? because you believe in it and you sort of trust the process. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this is so much gut feel, intuition, philosophy, uh, stick to and, and not a ton of science. Like I cannot tell you, Oh, well, if you see that, um, 70, you know, after 75 productions of an ongoing thing, you should have achieved 112 times what you achieved on your third episode. There's nothing like that, right? It, that's not how it goes. It is, um, serendipitous in a lot of ways. Uh, and it works very similarly to how you invest in learning a new skill or, um, producing a new form of art or, you know, whether that, um, it, it works the same way that your, yeah, your, your body muscles work, right. That, that you sort of get good at something over time. And then you start to feel the energy of like, this is, this feels right for me. I get energy from doing this. I feel engaged. I can see the signs of pickup or, you know, maybe I need to pivot a little bit. Maybe I was creating a lot of visual content for Instagram and it's, it's working okay, but I can see that it's more B2B. I need to start expanding my sharing of this visual content to LinkedIn and Twitter. And these three channels combined, plus, you know, dragging people back to my website to see the originals and to get the full, you know, thing, whatever, like that's, that's sort of the magic. And I, I learned that over time. Um, yeah, there's no... If, if you find a formula for it, let me know. Cause that would be, that would be pretty amazing. <laughs> well, to take uh, whiteboard Fridays as an example, um, did you have that in mind of, uh, Hey, this is going to take a while to start to see the results and maybe to start to see sort of some promises. Um, and were there times where maybe you question it or you considered shutting it down or stopping? Sure. Yeah. Um, I would say with whiteboard Friday, not really mostly because it saved me from writing a blog post. It only took 20 minutes for me to film. Hmm. And so that, that time savings was worth so much that like having a one piece of content that didn't perform as well for a while, didn't, didn't harm us. And it was experimental in that like, Oh, okay. Well, video seems like it's taking off on the web so we can, 
we can start to dip our toe in this water and be there and ready if it, if it really takes off. And of course, it really did take off. Um, I think with other sorts of episodic content, so I, I did like a, a big research series the last few years uh, around clickstream data, right? And, and looking at um, especially, you know, the dominance by the duopoly of like owning traffic on the web and how half of all Google searches now result in no clicks, you know, zero clicks to anywhere else and, and how uh, uh, Facebook's engagement rates are way down and, you know, the traffic that they send is way down, blah, 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 all this stuff. And I push out, put out probably one of those every quarter, uh, sometimes, sometimes more. Those reports did extremely well. You know, front page of Hacker News. Um, one of the reports was cited in Congress and, and talked about on all these news stations and that kind of stuff. You know, great series. But then Jumpshot got got shut down. They were they were my data provider for a lot of these. They, they you know they basically gave me data pro bono in exchange for me talking about how cool their data was, which it was. Um, and they got shut down for sort of privacy, not pri real privacy reasons, but like a threat of bloggers who may or may not have been backed by Google um, <laughs> talking about their, uh, um, you know, interfering with the, uh, with a vast business who was, who was sort of providing the data. So that was a big frustration. I, you know, I'd love to bring it back. I'm talking to some other clickstream providers, um, but it's, a uh, yeah, these are, you know, they're stop and start. It's hit or miss too. I have tried, I've tried a bunch of experiments. I tried some Instagram experimenting with like some of my blog post stuff to see if I could get more people. I weirdly, I got more people liking the Instagram post about the blog post than actually clicking through to the blog post. <laughs> so, you know, maybe, maybe that, that, that channel didn't end up working for me. Mm. Speaking of the future of content marketing and, um, sort of the, the data and what you've been seeing in your research, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention SEO and the future of SEO as you see it. And from what I understand, you actually have a pretty pessimistic view of SEO and that uh, total searches are plateauing, clicks are declining, Google is infringing and or sort of uh, becoming the content that people are, are searching for as well as the platform to search. But the silver lining, according to you, is that maybe instead of focusing on ranking better in the searches that you should focus on creating more searches. Could you explain your thinking on that? And I'm also just curious personally, like how you came to that conclusion as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the data is pretty clear, right? That zero click searches are on the rise, have been for many years. Google keeps trying to do more and more around this. It's extraordinarily bad on mobile and it's getting worse and worse on desktop. Um, the only good news this year in particular is that it is probably true that Google's sending more traffic this year than they did the last two years hmm. because the pandemic keeps us all on our desktops instead of our mobile phones. And so click-through rates are almost 2x um, on, on desktop versus versus mobile, which is no surprise, right? Because the, the format of what you see is just so much more click enticing. Um, so, you know... When lockdown ends, when quarantine sort of goes away, I don't know if that's next year or five years from now, you know, who, who knows, but whatever it is, um, then we'll probably see a return to that, you know, m much more mobile heavy usage world. And, you know, the, the clicks that Google sends have, have gotten worse. Google made an announcement just a couple days before we recorded this right, that they were going to start extracting more snippets of data, sort of indexing 
like paragraphs and short sentences of content from your content and showing those directly in the search results so that no one ever has to visit your website. Isn't that great? Screw you, the open web. Um, <laughs> and uh, right, like announcements like that are pretty scary because they indicate not only is Google doing this, they also feel no pressure and no concern with providing clicks to the rest of us, uh, right? They're, they're unabashed about this rock and a hard place that they put publishers in um, of all kinds. So for those reasons, I am not pessimistic about SEO. I think that hmm. SEO will largely um, survive. I think that there's more SEO practitioners and more money going to, into SEO right now than there ever has been in the history of SEO. Um, I think it's an amazing time to be in that field. I think it probably has at least three to five years more of growth and um, a vibrant economy and maybe 20 years, like who, who knows? But I think what's very clear to me is um, if you are playing in SEO, you can't just be playing for traffic anymore. Like you savvy, smart, thoughtful SEOs will be playing for influence over searchers more so than just generating a click to a website. Hmm. Um, and what's tough is I think a lot of, it will take a long time for executives and CMOs and VPs of marketing who only in the last five to six years even started to trust SEO, right? For the 15 years prior to that, they were like, oh, that's snake oil junk. <laughs> um, they've only just started to trust SEO. And now practitioners are going to have to talk to them about, hey, you cannot just be thinking about search engine optimization as a traffic driver. It has to be an influence driver. Your homepage is not your homepage. It's Google search, right? The Google search results are your homepage. And um, I think that will mean a lot more on SERP SEO and in SERP SEO, which is harder to measure. You know, you're going to need a lot more rank tracking tools and that kind of stuff. But um, that, that feels like the, the short and long-term future to me. Hmm. Yeah. So if brand is actually the future of SEO and increasing the searches for your brand or things associated with your brand and maybe more, you know, marketing holistically as well, how do marketers go and implement this? Like what are some of the real, real life applications of how to increase, uh, the searchability or demand for searches of your brand? Yeah, I mean, you, let's see, um, it's really a combination of three things that increases branded search, right? One is awareness, right? So I talk about my brand and people are like, Spark Toro, what's that? I need to go find out. Um, uh, the second one is creating a compelling, short, well-positioned value proposition. So, so that people have some reason to think to themselves, not only oh, I've heard of this brand, but also it solves this problem that I have, hmm. or it solves this potential problem, or I'm interested in it, or it speaks to my hobby, or like it, it, it's interesting and creative and clever. I want to see it for some reason. Um, and then the, the third one is the, uh, what I call sort of the brand experience. So essentially creating an ecosystem of content and messaging and news and information and sharing activity and social engagement and community around your brand that gives it sort of a, a halo effect and makes it 
um, feel big and important and so people have a reason to come back to you and you're a destination for this reason and they have subscribed to you in these other ways and you know they're in your ecosystem um, and they can get deeper into it by searching for you. Uh, I think that that is also crucial. So that none of those are easy. Like <laughs> brand marketing is a huge challenge. Uh, very, very difficult in B2C and B2B. Both marketplaces are extremely crowded. There's almost uh, almost no market that isn't crowded with brand, with brand building at this point. And um, I think that it's because it's so difficult, if you can stand out, if you can do it well, it is a huge competitive advantage, maybe the biggest mm. one. Yeah. In a similar vein of SEO, I think a lot of people are wondering these days with the rise of audio and video formats, also with Google seeming to also uh, be prioritizing that kind of content more recently and starting to, to make some steps in the right direction there. Uh, and so I wanted to get your thoughts on video and audio SEO and what's important. Uh, what should marketers be thinking about today in order to set themselves up for the future with their audio and video content within Google and and the other sort of searchable platforms like YouTube or Bing, for example. Yeah, well, man, it's a, it's a tough call about whether to go. So look, I think uh, uh, aside from potential government action or Google fearing government action and like taking some move, YouTube and Google are sort of like the way to get video into the search engine, right? And, um, you know, for better or worse, Google has made Actually, for better or worse, for worse, Google has made YouTube the way uh, to get into their search engine results and to be in their video results and at the top of the, the page, right? I think um, Dr. Pete from Moz just did a big study, you know, whatever it was, 94% of all video clips come from you, excuse me, come from YouTube. All right, you're not going to get anyone else in there, right? And this is, you know, this is clearly Google using their search monopoly to benefit their, you know, wholly owned subsidiary YouTube. But, you know, until and unless somebody's willing to do something about it at the at the regulatory level, we're we're stuck in this world. So, um, I think YouTube is a is the channel to think about when it comes to video. When it comes to audio, the news is a little bit better. Google's podcasting system and their transcript systems seems to support many platforms right now. My guess is if podcasting continues to grow and Google sees that it gets a ton of attention and they want to start, they will make Google podcasts the YouTube of, you know, into another YouTube for audio. Um, what I don't, where I don't see uh, much activity, I know it's been so hot the last like four or five years to talk about is uh, wh whatever you want to call it, uh, voice search, which most people, when they talk about voice search, at least in our field, what they really mean is voice answers. Hmm. Voice search is search. Like there's no, <laughs> what's the difference between like me going, hey, Google, uh, show me the best Costa Rica vac vacations. And then they like, you know, show me a, a, a list of results. Okay. Is that any different from if I had typed it in? No, not really. Okay. Then who cares about voice search? What we care about is, Hey Google, what are the best, best, best hotels to go to in Costa Rica? And then Google starts the best hotels in Costa Rica are okay. Now we're talking about something completely different. That's a whole new kind of SEO. The, the, 
but that has not grown very much. It's still a very tiny portion of things. Most of the searches that happen on there are the same searches every day again and again. Um, many of them are um, done by, by people under 18 and done exclusively for instant answer kinds of content that often relates to like a combination of schoolwork and entertainment. So mm. not a lot of like monetizable value. Eh, there's, there's a few exceptions, but generally speaking, I, I would not invest in it right now. I would not invest in voice search SEO or voice answer SEO. Mm. I think it's too early. Um, we don't have good data suggesting that it's really worthwhile for most. And I, most is like 99%. Yeah. Speaking about uh, coming back to flywheels, finally, um, you've mentioned a few in some blog posts and some thoughts of yours of sort of the, the content and SEO flywheel. There's the social plus influencer plus advertising flywheels, press and word of mouth, freemium are all a few sort of examples that you listed. And they're amazing concepts, but I think a lot of people also wonder like how, how do you take action on these types of concepts and frameworks? Um, what, I, what I'm wondering is, uh, especially for the ones that you've listed and sort of your approach, what using the flywheel as a actionable concept, do you choose a flywheel? Is a flywheel something that is very inherent to your product or your, uh, your, your brand, your audience? Is it assembled or designed? Like how do you actually take action on a flywheel for, for your marketing? Um, so the way I think about it is basically it's a, it's a concept, but to your point, very actionable one, and it is designed, right? So you choose, hey, here's what I'm going to produce. I'm going to produce whatever, ads. I'm going to produce videos. I'm going to produce podcast episodes. I'm going to produce blog posts. I'm going to produce uh, once a quarter white papers. I'm going to produce webinars. I'm going to produce blah, 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 blah. And then here's how I'm going to amplify it. And here's how I'm going to earn a bigger audience after that amplification. And here's how I'm going to bring that audience back to our website to subscribe. And here's how I'm going to make sure that like every time we put out a new one, more people pay attention to it. So I, I design that flywheel. Hopefully I'm improving it. It's just like a conversion optimization funnel, right? Like I get this many people to my website. Here's how I get them to the product page. Here's how I get them to the purchase page. Here's how I get them to put in their credit card. Here's how I get them to pay again next month, blah, blah, blah. Right. So that, um, it is a designed mechanism. If you do it well, you can have extraordinary results. The nice thing about flywheels is you can mess up for a long time. And then if you, if you're just slowly iteratively improving, uh, you will find some magic there, right? You just, um, it's a, it's a process of evolution of learning of failure. That's okay. You know, it's okay to be, Gosh, I'm terrible at social sharing. Why can't I get any engagement, any traction? Let me try this. Let me try that. Ah, oh, it's been a year. I've been social. Ooh, I figured it out. This thing works really well. I'm going to keep doing this thing. Ooh, all right. Now I, now I got a little roll going. Okay, that's solved. Ah, the email subscriptions, that's still a problem. How do I get more people to get into the email subscription? Okay, I'm going to try some design and UX stuff. I'm going to try to compel, make the newsletter more compelling, the call to action more compelling. I'm going to try to make the format more compelling. Right. And uh, slowly, iteratively, whoop, 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 that flywheel starts spinning faster. Mm, yeah. I'd love to touch on launching SparkToro and also sort of your approach to SparkToro's marketing and 
positioning and pricing and, and all these sorts of things. But I'll start here and that between the announcement of SparkTower, which I believe was in February of 2018, and then the publicly available launch of SparkTower, which I think was in April of this year in 2020, it's quite a bit of time, right? I mean, a little bit over two years. How do you think about um, the launch, the uh, the announcements, that time in between? Um, and you know, did you sort of know going into it that it was going to be that long? And, and uh, how did that affect your strategy with the launch? Uh, I knew it would be a long time because the product itself was an idea that was untested, right? Yeah. So we, we did not know whether, like, would it be possible to crawl enough data from social networks? You know, could we effectively crawl Instagram and public Facebook pages and LinkedIn and Twitter and YouTube and Reddit and Quora and Medium? And like, it was a lot of work. And then if you assemble all these, you know, non-personally identifiable um, profiles, right? Anonymized profiles. And then you search across them and aggregate them and show their shared behavior. Is that useful information? Does that tell you enough about like the audience? We had seen some signs from some really clever uh, in-house marketing teams that had built something similar mm. just for their own use to, to give us like the inkling that this could work. But frankly, we didn't know how many searches it would work on, how much data it would work well for um, so just a ton of R and D, a ton of crawling. And this is why the first, you know, about six months of SparkToro's life from March. So I, I left Moz February 28th. I think I started SparkToro March 1st and the first, um, first six months of SparkToro were basically raising money, you know, going to, uh, mostly angel investors and, and, um, finding, you know, folks who, um, would, would back us, which would turn out to be a lot of agencies, actually agency owners, hmm. um, and individuals, a ton of people who'd never written an investment check before in their life. Uh, but they liked our unique structure. They were like, yeah, I want to, I want to invest. I want this to exist. I think it's exciting. And I also dislike or understand why Rand does not like venture capital and, and wants to go this other route. So that, um, you know, that process was there. I got Casey on board, my co-founder on board, I think maybe three months after uh, announcing it. And then we spent the next, yeah, about year building the first version. We launched that in summer to a beta list, uh, summer of 2019 to a beta list. People started testing it, uh, played around with it. We had a second beta cohort in the fall, got a bunch of feedback. We worked with um, Elevate, which is a, a consultancy, a SaaS consultancy. Uh, that's uh, Claire Sullentrop and, and Georgiana Laudi, and, and they did a you know great job helping us through like turn beta customer feedback into actionable things that we needed to do hmm. for um, for the product. And then uh, we redesigned it in December and January and launched in we <laughs> we we did our early access launch in February and it was going so well. And then of course COVID hit yeah. and like pandemic, lockdown, economic crash, all this, yeah, all this kind of stuff. So that is essentially how we did it. But all during that period, right? Casey's doing all of the R and D technical work. And I was basically doing marketing, right? I'm basically using other people's platforms and my own blogging and the, and the, the research I'm doing with Jumpshot, all this kind of stuff to get the word out about like, not SparkToro the solution, but the problem SparkToro is solving. Like if you're excited about this problem and you think that a solution is, is interesting, sign up for our early access email list. We'll email you as soon as it's ready. 
And that's how we got our beta group, and that's how we got our second beta group, and that's how we did our early access launch in February. We got about our first 100, 150 paying subscribers from that list. It's very effective. I would urge anyone who is building a product, especially a product that takes a long time to build, to do use a similar methodology. It was very effective. And as a result, you know, one of the nice things is the, the product was relatively polished. It was effective. It had been well tested by the time it launched. And um, because of that, by September, so it was that five months after launch, we had our first break-even month. Hmm. Great. You know, now we're no longer, uh, we'll probably burn some of it next month, but because uh, we're going to spend some more money with an agency. But, um, you know, we're, we're not burning capital. Like we are break even, getting to profitability. Hopefully next year will be a profitable year for us, which is, you know, that'll be our first full year of operations. It's pretty great, right? And then we can start to repay our investors. And we have this weird model where we paid, it shouldn't be weird, but uh, <laughs> where we pay dividends off the profits from the company back to our investors. And, you know, amazing, right? Building a really cool kind of business, hopefully solving a painful problem that you couldn't really solve. Like, I don't know any way to get the data that you get from SparkToro for free or for paid anywhere else, right? Like wh where are you going to find out what percent of chemical engineers listen to a given podcast? Yeah, absolutely. I want to pick out a couple of things that you did in particular, one of which that I noticed and picked up on, I thought was really fascinating was that even before the product was ready, you sort of had these free tools and many uh, products like uh, the fake follower audit, the um, SparkToro trending, the Spark score, why create them? What was the strategy behind them, especially pre-launch? Um, some of them, we needed the data that we used in those products for the actual SparkToro product, right? So we needed Spark score and fake followers because we needed some way of prioritizing people based on engagement rate. So like if you go to the social tab in SparkToro and you're like, I want to see the highest um, sort of engagement, or I want to see the hidden gems, right? The accounts that get high engagement when they share, even if they have a smaller audience. We knew this was a thing we were going to build. And so SparkScore made sense to build and launch. Plus, uh, the OAuths to SparkScore gave, gave us a bunch of, you know, data and access and uh, early, mm. you know, we got a bunch of people signing up to our email list, right? So it's a marketing thing, a product thing, an R&D thing, a technology thing. Beautiful. Uh, fake followers, same story. We knew that we wanted to exclude fake accounts and bots. So we had to build some tech around that. We figured if we launched a free version, we could get a bunch of people <laughs> to uh, to check it out. The big thing with that, of course, was we did an analysis over all of Donald Trump's followers. And we're like, well, 70% of Donald Trump's Twitter followers like don't exist, right? They, they're, mm. they're either you know registered at one point and then they quit and they've never used the platform again, or their bots or their propaganda accounts or their, you know, um, uh, fake accounts, whatever it is. Um, and that, you know, that of course brought a ton of people to come check it out. No surprise. Uh, and then that also gave us the technology to be able to filter those fake accounts out of our system so that when you do an analysis in SparkToro, you know, you're getting data on real accounts. And then we have this, free tool to back up the sort of like, hey, you're not analyzing bots here, are you? Like these are real, whatever, landscaping professionals in Toronto, not, you know, a bunch of bot accounts. Mm, yeah. You've also done a few unconventional 
things within the launch process uh, that I noticed where you sort of did a pre-sale or you would offer uh, credits or yeah. um, even, you know, you ask free users if they need help using their account, even though they're, they're not paying yet. Uh, you send renewal emails before customers get charged just to make sure that there's a heads up. Um, why incorporate these kind of things maybe that, that you don't have to, or what was the strategy behind all these little details that went into the product and the launch? Uh, a huge part of that is just like customer experience. We wanted, I wanted SparkToro to feel different from every other software as a service product you use, not just in terms of like the product itself and the value you get, but that it is personal. I feel like I am dealing with two human beings who are excited about building some marketing software, not, you know, sort of a financially backed company that's trying to extract as much revenue growth as possible. Um, and so, yeah, we, you know, we have a much higher than I'm sure what we would have at a normal churn rate, right? Customers leaving because we email you three days before and we're like, Hey, are you sure you're using this? You sure you want to get charged again in three days? If you're not like go run a bunch of searches now, you know, use up all your data and then quit and come back whenever you want. We'll be here. Mm. Like you don't worry about it. We're not venture backed. So we don't care about our, like, Maybe I'm supposed to care about my turn rate. I don't care about my turn rate. I care about delighting people. I care about someone saying, holy shit, I cannot believe Rand emailed me and said I should cancel my account if I'm not using it. Nobody does that. That's crazy. And I don't have to call. I can just click the button and then I go right to the, what a great feeling. Like that, that is so nice. <laughs> like that's so kind and thoughtful of you. I, I just want, I always want Spartoro's experience to feel like that, right? Just throughout the entire process. When you sign up for a free account, we don't, we don't treat you like dirt just because you're free. Like you get, you know, whatever, you get your 10 searches a month, you can use the platform a bunch, you'll get an email from me asking if I can help you use it. I will happily respond and do all day, every day. My inbox is full right now, Corey, with people who are like, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to find this audience, I'm trying to find that audience, I wanna do this kind of marketing. And I'm going to spend my whole night like replying to them, right? Mm. <laughs> it's an exciting Friday night. Um, but that, that's just the, the kind of feel that we wanted the brand to have. Um, and so it's a little less, a little less short term and a lot more, what, what, what should a company be, right? What should a brand be? Yeah. Um, I, I hope, I hope that what it means long-term is an even healthier revenue company, right? That in, you know, if you look five years out from what we would have been if we were sort of more, whatever, what money extracting and greedy and all these short-term approaches that in fact we'll do better because we took a long-term approach. But if we don't, if that's not true, I, I don't care, right? Like I'm, I'm happy to do the right thing, even if it means less money. I think I'm pretty sure in a capitalist society, that is the definition of good and evil. <laughs> right? Evil is I'm willing to sacrifice my ethics and what is right to get more money. Um, and good is I'm willing to sacrifice wealth and influence and power in exchange for doing the right thing. Hmm. So how do you wake up and look in the mirror in the morning? Yeah. Right? Which one do you want to be? The pricing has also been uh, interesting to watch because I know that you've gone through a couple of different iterations and, and tweaks here and there. And actually when I asked, uh, this white files, private community, sort of the, um, the brands behind the podcast, uh, the most common question asked was how you came up with the pricing, uh, and especially why you chose a freemium model, given that a lot of the venture backed, uh, sort of 
traditional models include some sort of freemium offering where you you know grow the user base and you get people on board. But could you walk me through uh, how you designed the pricing and what sort of changes uh, you've made along the way? Yeah, so we had, I don't know if you used um, my last company, Moz, right? But we had this like, initially we had a free sort of forever free version that was like, you know, with the, you get the Moz bar for free. I think you still can actually. And, and a couple other, you know, tools that you could use for free, but it was a little hodgepodgey. And then there was like a free trial to use the paid version. And then there was the paid version. Um, and the free trial model, to be honest, I don't like it. Hmm. Um, I don't, I honestly don't think it's a great idea. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't do it again. And I'm not doing it again for a self-service focused product that is, you know, sub $200 a month. Um, that's B2B subscription. Right? Interesting. Um, you can even see, I saw Netflix drop their free trial recently. You know, mm. they had like the 10 day free trial or 14 day free trial or whatever it was. And they dropped it worldwide. And I was like, oh, maybe more companies are kind of figuring out that this doesn't work well, even more consumer side. Um, so that, that was kind of our, our uh, reasoning there. We wanted... So initially the free version was not nearly as generous as it is now. It was really like a try a few searches. You can sort of see what's in there, but really we want to try and serve paid folks. It was when COVID hit, when the pandemic hit uh, in at the end of February, because Seattle was where we live is one of the first places that was, yeah, I think it was the first place um, where we had deaths in the United States. And um, when that happened and we saw the economic collapse coming and, you know, stores out of everything and yada, yada, we were like, okay, we need to retool, <laughs> like, let's mm. go back to the drawing board. And we basically decided to make the free version much more generous, uh, at launch and much more sort of permanently forever free usable and useful. So a ton of people who use the product regularly and recommend it are free users, which was not generally part of our marketing, but I think probably a really good way to build up, you know, future demand and, and get more folks, um, getting value from the product, right? We wanted, we wanted the product to be valuable to more people than just the few hundred subscribers we were probably going to get in 2020. Um, and then we did, we did a big survey. We worked with a company called, do you know, conversion rate experts out of the UK? Yeah. yeah. So we worked with them over the summer. We did just a short, uh, three month engagement. First thing they did with us was design and ran a big survey to our free users and our paid customers, asked them a bunch of questions from that. We did a, a few interviews with, with folks and then determined that one of the big, we did a whole bunch of things, but like, okay, we're going to make case studies. Okay. We're going to have an email, email onboarding series. Okay. We're going to redesign the product page. We're going to redesign the home page. We're going to redesign the, 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 uh, free signup system, the registration system. We're going to redesign the first experience in the app when you get to the, the overview landing page, blah, 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 like tons of things that we did with them. But one of those was we want to experiment with a $50 a month price point. Hmm. Uh, cause we had started with 150. Um, and, uh, we did that initially as like an email offer. It seemed to do pretty well. We've been watching the churn rate on that $50 a month cohort. It looks decent. I think we have probably one or two more months of testing before we decide to make it permanent. Um, but that that looks like it was a good bet and it was based off user feedback. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. I'm also curious, just in, in long term, 
looking at Sparktoro and of course you being a marketer and I'm sure that there's always wheels turning in your head about the future of Sparktoro's marketing and your strategy as a whole. But how has the sort of unconventional funding model influenced the way that you approach marketing? You're, you're non-VC, like you said, you're uh, prioritizing customers in a very capitalistic, um, good way, but you're also prioritizing profitability. So how has that affected or changed the way that you think about marketing and uh, the marketing strategy for SparkToro? Um, the biggest thing that it probably changes for us is we, we have taken paid marketing off the table. Like what I, you know, I'm not sure that I would have, even if I were venture backed, run a ton of Facebook and Google ads, I'd probably do some, I'd probably do some LinkedIn ads. Like we have a very, we get really good traffic quality from LinkedIn for my sharing on that network. It's probably not a terrible idea to do some, we could probably positive ROI that in a short amount of months, but we don't know what LTV lifetime value for our customers looks like yet. And we probably won't for another six to nine months. So we're, we're playing it very cautiously hmm. right now. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the biggest one. The other one I would say is that we didn't build out the team. Like it's just the two of us, all contractors and agencies beyond us that works well, like that works well for Casey and I, but, um, Pretty, pretty unusual, would be very, very unusual in a venture-backed situation. Pretty unusual given SparkToro's growth, which I think, weirdly enough, um, I was looking at this, I think SparkToro's first 12 months of operation will do even better than uh, Moz's first 12 months of software sort of growth, um, even though Moz obviously is a venture-backed company and SparkToro's not, but... Yeah. Wow. And I think whether someone is a founder or marketing leader, creative director, first marketing hire, they're going to be wondering about how to build out that team and how to grow the marketing function along with the company's growth. And yeah. you have some interesting thoughts about in-house versus agency versus freelancer. And you just sort of alluded to the fact that um, your funding situation has largely determined that strategy. So what are your thoughts on hiring marketing in-house versus uh, agency or consultant or freelancer? Um, I, let's see, let's assume budget was not the big concern, right? That essentially I'm, I'm looking for uh, value. I want a single or a few marketing generalists with deep knowledge of the business and the customers on my team. And then I want them working with agencies and consultants who specialize and who can basically get done in you know, one or two hours, what would take an in-house person five or 10 to do, um, and, and to do it with the knowledge and experience that comes from working on a ton of different projects. Right. So mm -hmm. like, oh, I've been buying whatever Instagram ads for 50 different B2B SaaS brands. I know exactly what to do. I know what's going to work. I know it's not going to work. Oh, you've been only optimizing your Instagram B2B ads for one brand. There's no way, there's no way you're going to be as good at it. You just, you can't compete right? You'll, you'll never be as good. Um, same thing is true with, you know, sort of, uh, content strategy stuff. Same thing is true with, uh, PR, right? Uh, digital PR or, or traditional PR. Uh, same thing is going to be true with, um, probably managing our, uh, SEO, right? So that, that's just how it goes, right? Agencies, especially very good agencies, which obviously I have a deep connection to a ton of those and, and a lot of experience. Uh, they're, they're just going to be better. <laughs> like 
you know, no offense to my in-house colleagues or to myself, right? Like I'm not, I'm not ragging on my own SEO skills. I'm pretty decent at it, but I am never going to measure up to someone who's doing it all day, every day for tons of brands and seen a million experiences and knows exactly what's happening when the Google rankings fluctuate and like, sorry, right? I just, I can't pay that much attention to it. Hmm. I have to do a million other things. I can only focus on my own brand. Even if I did all SEO all day, every day for just my brand, I would not know as much, right? And I know this from my own experience at Moz, doing SEO there, doing content there, right? Like creating the content, good. The strategy, the amplification, like we, we should have, we should have outsourced it. Could have done way better and for way cheaper. You know how much healthcare costs in this country? <laughs> Holy shit, man. Too much. It's, it's ludicrous. Casey and I are going to be paying $8,000 a month for two people next year. And we have like decent, but not fancy Cadillac plans, right? We have like decent, good, you know, almost as good as what I had at Moz. But not quite. $8,000 a month for two people? Yeah. Right? So, you know, I want to bring on someone else. I'm going to pay another 4K or more. Nope. Nope. <laughs> It does, the math is very hard to make work for full-time employees. You know, 4K a month of just healthcare, never mind salary, means that very frankly, you can spend 4K a month with an agency or a consultant and get some great results. Hmm. So early stages, it's tough to justify. Yeah. One of the other unconventional uh, opinions that you have is around product market fit. And I'm sure many people are wondering, well, does SparkToro have product market fit? Does it not? Um, you know, has he, re has he reached it? Um, and how does that play into your strategy? But you actually think that it's a pretty broken concept, even though it's, it's one of the... It's the Schrodinger's cat of startup t terminology. Right. It's startup bingo. It's one of the first ones that's mentioned, right? Um, yeah. So if it is a broken concept, why is it broken? And what's the alternative? Well, so let's see, I, I think the broken concept implies that like at one time it was a true thing mm. and now it no longer works. I, I think it's more like millennial. It never existed and it's not a real thing, right? Like if you were born on January 2nd, 1981, all everything about who you are as a human being does not immediately make you super different from someone born December 30th, 1980. Like why the cutoff makes no sense. Is there, is there, are there any stats to support that that year should be a cutoff year or that are there any stats to suggest that 20 year cohort age ranges over the last whatever 80 years of American history are, is a valuable thing to differentiate people from one another. And it is predictive of behavior or attributes in some way, uh, meaningfully non-arbitrarily and, and the, except with Gen X, which is a 15 year cohort for some reason, arbitrary <laughs> again, everybody else is 20 years, Gen X, 15 years, who the F knows why, what, like what, what I'm saying is that's a meaningless concept that just because it's repeated and used a lot doesn't mean it is useful or interesting or valuable. Product market fit, same story. The idea that you magically turn a switch from, we did not have product market fit and therefore we should not be trying to scale our marketing and acquire many new customers. We should just be focused on finding product market fit, which usually means like improving your product um, 
or your onboarding or how people use your product or their inability to stop paying you for the product or you know, whatever it is, right? Versus, oh, you have product market fit now, stop working on the product so much and scale, right? Like now your job is to grow. That arbitrary switch is a pretty, pretty dumb mental paradigm. Like it is harm, directly harmful. You should not take the behaviors behind it that it suggests you should. Um, doing so is almost certainly detrimental to your health. I, I'm pretty sure that the only reason it exists is because investors wanted a shorthand reason to say no hmm. to certain companies that pitch them. Um, and this was a popular way to do that while looking like you knew what you were talking about, even if you had no idea of what you were talking about. Right. And, yeah. um, that the met, you know, the metric, the, the best example I can give is if you go look at any company who, um, is said to have found product market fit, the metrics for what determined that they had it versus didn't are completely different, right? They're unique to every different company and unique to different scales. And people are like, oh, well, they, oh, that company, no, they, they, they had product market fit, but then they lost product market fit. That's what, that's what happened to them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Um, and that, that company, oh no, they said that they found it, but they, they didn't actually find it. I'm the arbiter of whether they found it or not. And it's retroactively applied and it does. Nope. Useless. This is a useless concept. Stop using it. Yeah. So, so then what's the, what's the alternative? Because I know that, uh, essentially the, whether or not product market fit is a broken concept or if it's a myth or whether it is actually inherently valuable, I think what people are after is, does my product have some sort of traction, uh, or promise in the market and how do we measure that? Yeah. So this is, and this is exactly what, what I'm suggesting is that if you get rid of the idea of product market fit, then you start to ask those smart questions. Does my product have traction in its market, right? Is it succeeding with a certain type of customer, but not others? And which ones is it succeeding with? And what are the metrics for success for us? Does success mean a few months of subscription? Does it mean a certain amount of engagement? Does it mean that they've invited more people to the product? Does it mean that uh, people come back to the product again and again. Does it mean that it's getting more advertising revenue? What are, you build your metrics for your company and your customers in your market and you build it by cohort and you segment those core cohorts effectively so that you know, oh, we're doing really well for this kind of person and badly for this kind of person. You can't eat, product market fit doesn't allow for that right? <laughs> Product market fit is binary. Mm -hmm. So you can't know whether you, oh, we're doing this much better with this group and this much better with this group and this much worse with this other. That's, that's useful. Now you can start to make real investments and make strategic decisions around whatever your product and your marketing and how you scale and your team and your consultants and all those things. If you're, if you're lost in, do we have product market fit? You will be necessarily asking dumb questions instead of smart ones and optimizing towards a false thing that doesn't exist versus a real thing that does. Um, and yeah, I think if, uh, you know, if someone says product market fit to you, you just go, hold up millennial. <laughs> this works especially well if they are not fitting the traditional media definition of millennial. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's great. Rand, you've been super generous with your time. Thank you and appreciate you coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Take care. 
Thanks again to Rand for being so generous with his time. If you can, pop on Twitter and let him know that you liked the episode and got some valuable takeaways. And that would go a long way for me. And I know he'd also really appreciate that. And by the way, check out SparkToro. It's a game changer. There's a very generous free forever plan. So just create an account and do some research on your audience. All you have to do is visit SparkToro.com. And a few takeaways for you. First, to make a collaboration with an influencer, another company, or anything that, that has reached your audience successful, you have to understand what you can offer to them and make it contextually relevant to actually help them. Also, the future of content and marketing as a whole will be much more about brand, creating content that loops people in, creating searches for your brand, associating yourself with the problem that you solve, and designing flywheels that make marketing easier and more effective over time. And finally, marketing has a lot to do, a lot more to do with philosophy and values that most people realize from which platforms you spend your, your time on to who you give money to, what you choose to invest in and how long you stick it out for and the experience that you ultimately want to deliver on. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.